Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Rabbi Rachel Cohen and host Michael Lerner as they explore Rabbi Cohen's spiritual biography. Rabbi Rachel Cohen, welcome to the New School. Oh, thank you, Michael. You know, I faced a a real challenge in thinking about how to have this conversation. Um, First of all, for me, it's a trifecta. It's a spiritual biography with you. It's a discussion of your wonderful new book with Linda Thal, Wise Aging, Living with Joy, Resilience, and and Spirit. And it's also part of our Healing Circles conversations because... What you're doing here with aging is exactly what we're doing with cancer. And so we're very interested in the methodology of deep intentional healing circles work. So it's a trifecta. But the, um, the challenge was this. I could either pretend that our lives are not deeply interwoven, or I could bring our community into the interwovenness of our lives. And so I decided that... Uh, I would bring the community into the interwovenness of our lives. Because I would have done it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, just a few facts, and you can add to them. Um, I have a vivid memory of you uh, 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 doing the ceremony for my father, Max Lerner's funeral. Uh, I grew up with the family that you married into, the Cowan family, uh, Holly Cowan was in my class at Dalton School in New York. I knew Jeff. I knew your husband, Paul, of course, very well. I was with you and Paul after his diagnosis um, and uh, spent time with you. And um, uh, Paul's mother, Polly, was my mother's best friend. Uh, of course, Polly and her husband, Lou, died tragically in a fire, and I remember it was either Paul or Jeff saying to me, it could have been Jeff, that he thought that uh, my mother's loss was even greater than the children's loss, uh, you know, because they were such dear friends. And I remember how stricken she was after Polly's death and in such a tragic way. Um, You and Paul wrote an important book called Mixed Blessings about um, untangling the knots in interfaith marriage. And our family was one of the um, uh, case studies. And you came out to interview me here at Commonweal for that. Um, uh, We uh, have a very close circle of New York friends, including our beloved friend Kathy Goodman and David and Joan Grubin. Joan Grubin did an art show out here. David with Bill Moyers did the Healing in the Mind series, which with its piece on the Cancer Help Program, which really brought the Cancer Help Program to national awareness. You were the uh, Jewish um, Life uh, Program Director at the Nathan Cummings Foundation with our dear friend Charlie Halperin, who was the head of it. And Charlie and Susan remain dear friends of both of us. we did uh, mindfulness meditation retreats at Vicitos together. Um, so you and I have been involved uh, really uh, early on in both the mind-body health movement and the contemplative practice movement. So um, what, the depth of our connection is profound. It really is. And I, I just, ever since I met Paul, 
of course I met your parents. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a friend who still um, very was remained really close to Edna. And she said that all of the time that Edna lived, she grieved for Polly, mm-hmm. which was very, very moving to me. And uh, so I, I, as I will say, I grew up in a New England Protestant family, and um, I met Paul, my husband, after college. We met in the civil rights movement, and I came to meet his parents in New York, who were very, very successful. So to me, coming from, it's not like I came from, Podunk, but I had, you know, graduated from Bryn Mawr and gone into the civil rights movement, then met Paul, who was a larger than life person, and his family was larger than life. And then I go for dinner, and here's Edna and Max Lerner. And it was, I mean, because Max Lerner had been this hero of mine since I was, you know, in high school. I watched his show on when he was teaching at Brandeis, he had a TV show, you know, and then just getting to know you. And I, as you were talking, I had so many visual images. You know, I remember when Paul and I came out here uh, to interview for, for Mixed Blessings and we were in this I mean, to me, it's this beautiful little cabin and deer are outside and it's chimes are tinkling and, you know, and it just seemed, wow, to live in a place like this. And, uh, and yet your, your insights were so profound, so profound. And um, the contrast in cultures between your parents was so enormous. So that I have a very clear memory. But also the fact that you came out here and you had this Yale degree and you were going to be a political scientist and you were on the track and all of a sudden you just changed directions. I didn't know anyone who had done that before in that way. And so I was so full of respect and admiration and curiosity. How do you just do that? You know, so, so many of them when Paul was sick, you know, we just kept hoping we'd be able to come out here for a week and do that. But he never was in remission long enough to do that. So I have very emotional feelings of connection with you mm-hmm. well the feeling is deeply deeply mutual um, there's so many places to start but uh, uh, first of all you mentioned my father Max Lerner for those who don't know him he was a political philosopher mm-hmm. wrote about America as a civilization and was an extraordinary man and um, when you you and Paul wrote the book Mixed Blessings uh, what was so interesting, as it turned out, was there, there were three sons um, from my father's second marriage and my mother's second marriage. And um, I was the oldest. And so my youngest brother became distinctly Jewish and married a, a Jewish woman. My middle brother became distinctly Protestant and, you know, married a Protestant woman. And I became whatever you want to call, you know, sometimes I say I'm a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi. You know, that's my sort of line about, you know. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and, and it is a mixed blessing to be in an interfaith marriage because our friend Paul Gorman, who was also... Uh, the result of an interfaith, the child of an interfaith marriage, says about it, no home. Right. You have no home, you know. You are neither one nor the other. Either you choose one and become it completely, but then there's always a part of you that is left out. And I was never able to make that choice. I always had to be not only both, but what gave me permission was an understanding 
actually through uh, integral yoga that there's one truth and many paths, and that began to enable me to look at all the traditions, as you do in Wise Aging, so that while as a rabbi, your primary reference in Wise Aging is the Jewish tradition, this really is a, a template that people from any tradition can right. follow. Right, that's why we, yeah. we wrote it that way. Yeah. So let's start with the book. Um, uh, in the book, um, the first thing one notices about the book is that it's written as a, a manual, in a sense, for groups that want to do this together. I mean, you can do it alone, but it's you've set out right. uh, uh, to do this uh, uh, with groups of people to train people. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. I, well, what really struck me is when I turned 69, it seemed to me, oh, this is an age now. I was director of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and that was a small organization. A thing I learned from Michael very early on when we started the Jewish Healing Center when I worked at the Cummings Foundation was that you have a laboratory and a megaphone, so Michael could, from here, cre create the laboratory. And then you have a national and international megaphone where your work resonates out into the world. So that's sort of what the Institute for Jewish Spirituality was like. We did very intensive retreats with rabbis, cantors, educators, lay people, helping them find in themselves, to be able to go into themselves and find reconnect with their soul, many of them coming from a Judaism that had become highly rational. Mm -hmm. The spiritual had been really underdeveloped, underrepresented, uh, under-narrated. And so to give them a chance to do that work. And we so we built in a, a piece of meditation and Sylvia Borstein was our first teacher for all these rabbis and continues to be a mentor to many. Um, they never... You know, in rabbinical school, you don't learn about meditation. You don't, and I think probably in Protestant the theological seminaries, you don't either. So it's it's really the head that that keeps you going. So to give people a chance to go inside and connect and develop a notion of soul and spirit uh, was what we were doing. And as I turned sixty nine, I realized I don't really want to keep directing this. It's really even though it's small, to each year make your budget is a huge stress and, and have been other people getting to do the work that actually you'd kind of like to do. So I decided, okay, by 70, I'll leave this. And then I looked at well, 70, what does that mean in this society? We live in a society that doesn't value 70 at all. And there weren't, didn't, I didn't see a path really. I knew you could do things where you sort of developed a next career or an encore career, which is all terrific. But I was sort of looking, I've always looked for what's a spiritual path to follow into this. And I remembered the consciousness raising groups of the beginning of the feminist movement. And I knew that in a consciousness raising group is how you really discovered your own truth by talking with others. So I thought if nobody has a path and nobody has a model really, then why not help each other create a model. And so um, with, a, with Linda Saul, I'd been teaching a group, a spirituality group of women, and they, we all started aging, you know? So we said, well, what does all this spirituality have to do with our getting older? And so we investigated that together and did a fair amount of research. I was very involved. I read this Harvard longitudinal study of George Valen. What are the, what are the kind of characteristics of people who age well. 
And George Valen said, basically, anyone who lives past 80 with joy, that's really a good definition of, of aging well. And that seemed good to me. So we kind of constructed our group in this book around how the spiritual, those spiritual qualities that have really enabled people to, to age well. And then we created texts and prayers and different things that people could use and really wanting to make it available to, to all traditions and be, you know, be grounded in our own, but, but open to all. Mm-hmm. And in the book, um, some of the main topics that you deal with, um, well, let's just look at the chapters. Um, you, you look at, um, the chapters are exploring this stage of our lives, the river of life, I am my body, I am not my body, cultivating nourishing relationships, forgiveness and reconciliation, cultivating spiritual qualities for well-being, living with loss and finding light, conscious dying and legacy and stewardship. So among all of those, uh, let me just start with the river of life. And there you describe an exercise that you owe to Rabbi Zalman Schechter uh, could you describe that exercise? Because I think it's such a beautiful practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, you know, Eric Erickson said that one of the tasks of late life is what he called cultivating integrity instead of despair. And so integrity means that your life actually makes sense to you. You say, this has been my life till now. I mean, you can do this exercise anytime, but here's, here's my life to now. And what can I learn from looking at it reflectively? And from that, what can what can help me in the years ahead? So we, borrowing from Reb Zalman, you know, we we called making a chart sort of like a drawing on a huge piece of paper, like a sort of like a river, and dividing it up into seven year segments. And um, I guess Reb Zalman chose seven years is kind of the the mystical number. Um, so you write down on that everything you can remember about the, that seven years. Like when I was zero to seven, what are the memories I have of things that happened that I did, um, people I knew in those seven years, and then the next seven, the next up till where we are. And then sitting with it and going, so is there something I forgot? Like somebody, I, one of our students was doing that and he looked at me and said, oh, I forgot to say I was in the army. You know, he had just blanked out a huge part of his life. And then we asked people to go back and say, what were the high points? Circle the times when you felt really strong, you felt good, you felt happy, you felt well. And what were the times that were really low points for you? When were things really hard? You were discouraged, you were down, you were ill, whatever, um, you're grieving, you had a terrible loss. And then looking at the times that were the high points, kind of what were the factors? What made that so good for you? You know, what, did, what was so wonderful about that? Not just I had a great time, but really I was with people I cared about. I was doing work that mattered to me. I was whatever the things are that you would say contributed to that being such a such a high point, and at the low points. So how did I do that? Who, what was the strength? You know, thinking back to Polly and Lou's death in the fire, you know, what, how did we get through that? It was so horrible, you know, or Paul's illness. And also, what 
What are the threads that come out of that that then later led to higher points, you know, that led, it was teachings you took from that that helped you be more, be stronger, be more resilient, be more connected. And very often it's people that matter to you. And so you do that through your life. And then you realize, oh, this, you know, I would go back, you know, to my Quaker summer camp, you know, and I would think just being in nature, hiking, being in nature, sitting on the dock, meditating. Okay, now how, and at this sense of reconnection with a feeling that was so strong, how could I have more of that in my life now? You know, and seeing that really what helped, the thing that most helped with the, in the dark times was relationships. And seeing that in our lives, we, there's so many people that we really love and we don't see. I mean, it's probably different out here, but in New York. You no, know, it's the same. You're forever <laughs> saying, oh, we got to have coffee. There's a woman whose husband died two years after Paul, which was 27 years ago. We have not yet had coffee, and yet each time we see each other, oh, it's now a joke, but, you know, but that sort of epitomizes the sort of revolving door nature of a lot of relationships. And now at this age, there are people that have known us all our life, or people that we really love. Like every time you come to New York, I'm so happy to see you. And it isn't just about that time, but it's bringing in so much past. But to do that takes time. It means to have purpose. I'm going to connect with, I'm going to make time to, I'm going to go visit, you know. And so that was, that was one thing that came out of that. And then the other thing in my life, I don't know if you want to talk about later, but both Polly and Lou's death and Paul's death led me to a much deeper spiritual level, you know. I mean, it really is true that that spiritual growth comes at times of joy and happiness also, but but when you've been in that place of loss, you know, and you and you're looking for light, when you find it, that's something that really shapes your your life course. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I would say, as I said, I grew up um, in a very secular home. My parents very left wing, <clears throat> wonderful values, absolutely wonderful values, but no sense of the importance of ritual or or the of really having a home in a tradition, you know. I had a very strong New England wasp tradition, you know, really strong in that, mostly as manifested in sort of emotional tightness, not serving enough food, you know, things like that. (laughs) And and then also the, you know, a real sense of I can handle whatever comes along, you know. I'm not going to cry, I'm not going to, you know, but it, but it was, I, I do think that's really, I think that was one thing that was really helpful. When I met Paul, and we met in the civil rights movement, and he told me he was there because he was a Jew, I thought, wow, um, why am I here? I think I'm a nice person. You know, and there's a real difference between saying I'm a something and I'm a nice person. Um, so I... Uh, <laughs> what, is, what is your first memory of meeting Paul? Of meeting Paul? He, this is a town of Cambridge, Maryland that was at the time occupied by the National Guard, summer of 1963. And uh, my sister and I were running a tutorial program for the black students who planned to integrate the white school. And every night there were demonstrations that were very frightening. So it was a place you felt 
intense. And Paul was just there. He was writing an article for, uh, what's it called? The Lord Freud? No, um, Commentary Magazine, which at that time was a left-wing right. Jewish magazine. Now is the opposite. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he was very tall. He sweated easily, so his shirt was very wet. And he, But he had the biggest smile. He was this person who just assumed wherever, whoever he met that they had an interesting story to tell. And he was so excited about doing this. And I just thought he was, you know, extraordinary and intimidating. <laughs> but we didn't, um, we didn't really, he, I at that time was planning to marry somebody else and he had a girlfriend. But as it turned out, luckily, we were both going to the University of Chicago for graduate school. I did the School of Social Work and he to the Committee on Social Thought. And we drove out together, tandem. And he was always very rumpled and he smoked a lot and he had this battered old car. But we'd stop for coffee at each, you know, each coffee stop on all those boring roads that go. And um, we just fell in love. love. (laughs) And I'll tell you one, two funny stories. One is he remembers that he loved it, that I said how much I like old people. You know, he thought that was endearing about me. We stopped for um, dinner and uh, Paul had grown up in a Jewish family, but, you know, like yours, never celebrated anything Jewish. You know, he didn't. He went to Choate. We went to Choate Episcopal School, but he dropped out of Harvard in his junior year. He took a year off because he said, who am I at this university? It's Cotton Mather, you know, all these Protestant, you know, New England people. And and where am I and who am I anyway? I mean, he didn't have that sense of home. And he went to Israel for the year and he taught in a, a, you know, a school for immigrants from North Africa. Was this before or after the Peace Corps? This was in 1962, and then he came back and graduated from Harvard a year later. So when I met him, he had been very enthused about Israel, very sure. His mother raised him to believe that Jews fight racism. If Jews had been more, you know, if the Germans had been like, if they had been fighting Hitler more, it might not have happened. So Jews were going to make sure that that didn't, that was a thing he knew about Jewish, and it was a very extremely core identity that he had. But um, so I, he, I had just met him. Here he was in Cambridge, Maryland, because because he was a Jew. So we stopped for dinner. And um, he says, after dinner, I'm not going to eat anything for 24 hours. I said, really, how come? He said, well, it's Yom Kippur and Jews fast on Yom Kippur. I said, they do? You know, how interesting, why is that? And he said, um, I think it's solidarity with Israel. (laughs) So I said, oh, okay, I won't eat either. And then then we went on to Chicago where Holly, who was in your high school class, I mean, your elementary school class, Holly is there and she greets us at the door and she happens to have an Orthodox Jewish roommate. So she says, oh, great, nice to meet you. Why don't we go out to eat? And Paul says, oh, Holly, we can't go out to eat. It's Yom Kippur. And she goes, Paul, Yom Kippur's next week. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I knew was, you knew when Christmas and Easter were, you didn't, like, think they were a week away. And I, I, didn't, I had no understanding whatsoever of what it might mean to have a, a Jewish identity and that... 
the holidays, A, change dates year to year, so it's not like you never know what they are. But um, <laughs> any, but I was just I was just intrigued by that, you know. But we were going to, and so we went. Then we went into we finished finished social work school. We went into the Peace Corps again because of the draft. Went to South America, and in the middle of uh, uh, of our Peace Corps time, the war it is the Six Day War broke out, and Paul said, "I'm going." Up to Quito, I'm going to join, I'm going to the Israeli embassy, I want to go to Israel and fight. And I, and I think this is what I said was, what? You don't even know when Yom Kippur is. <laughs> How can you, what kind of Jew are you that you're going to go die in Israel, you know? And um, luckily, it was a, a very short war, and he didn't get there. So, um, and we came back from the Peace Corps, and, and I was pregnant with Lisa. And we thought, well, great, we'll raise them everything. You know, you know, be Jewish, Christian, Muslim, only Paul knew nothing about Judaism. I really knew barely anything about Christianity, and neither of us knew anything about Islam. And we hadn't heard then of Buddhism or Sufism. So <laughs> after a while, we uh, we had actually we had a, a sort of a an, ep, an incident. I think that was a cat, catalytic incident, which was. There was a sort of a, it was called the Havara group of people who met informally to pray and celebrate holidays together. And it was the holiday of Purim, which again, Paul and I had never heard of. So we go to it and we haven't told the kids the story ahead of time. We didn't know there was a story. So we go and there are these life-size you know, puppets acting out the story of Haman. You know, for those, you know, Haman is when Prince, Queen Esther saves the Jews from the plotting of Haman. And so in the middle of this thing, my little two-year-old, three-year-old son comes and runs, leaps into my arms. He says, Mom, Haman won't kill me, will he? I'm only half Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I just thought, this is not a good way to think of your identity. It's only half and it's going to get you murdered. uh, That was when we decided we need to do something about creating a a narrative for them. And so we decided we'd make it a Jewish one. And um, so we started a little school where they began to learn about it. And the more they were studying, then the more I was interested in it. And uh, because the parents had to do the teaching. Anyway, we're doing that. And, um, you know, Paul's father who had, Paul wrote a book called An Orphan in History. And what he was really doing in that book, it was after his parents died, was trying to find out where he came from. He felt like an orphan because he knew nothing about his father's whole side of the family. And and the mother's side were such assimilated German Jews that they had a Christmas tree, the only Jews in their suburb, no celebration of any holiday. So he just felt, here I am, a Jew with no no roots, no history. Um, Let me just interject here. This is uh, the opening paragraph from the Village Voice obituary. Uh, Paul Cowan, village voice writer and author of five books, dies at 48. Paul Cowan, a journalist of strong social passions, whose book An Orphan in History influenced thousands of assimilated Jews like himself to recover their Jewish heritage, died of complications from leukemia yesterday at New York University Hospital. He was 48 years old and lived in Manhattan. Mr. Cowan, a staff writer for The Village Voice for more than 20 years, was a man of seemingly boundless enthusiasm and curiosity who wrote about the things that interested him in an open and graceful way. So 
he really was um, a pioneer, if not almost the pioneer, of the recovery of Jewish identity yeah. for tens of thousands yeah. of assimilated Jews. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To this day, I meet people who said their lives were yeah. changed by his book. Right, yeah. And so after the fire, his parents died in, this, in a fire. Paul was 36 at the time. And he, that sent him in the direction of writing Orphan in History mm-hmm. and really, really learning and recovering that. And he became observant, but never, he kept his political and his social interests. And one of the things he loved about writing Mixed Blessings was, he said, this is so American, the story of people from these different backgrounds, a small town in Poland and a small town, you know, in Ireland and coming together. So to him, it was a huge novel that he did not feel any judgment about, but just curiosity. You're listening to a conversation with Rachel Cohen and Michael Lerner. For me, what the fire did was to say, I don't have any legs to stand on here. I, you know, that was their life. It's over. They were only 65. I need help. This isn't, I don't know enough to Were do you this. close to Polly and Love? I was very close to them. Yeah. Really close to them. Yeah. Um, I loved them very much, and they were very, you know, a mother-in-law, you know, can have a lot of judgments about how you're raising your children and all. They're not always mm-hmm. my views of how to do it, but... But she was great. She was wonderful. And Lou, he was just such a loving person. So I just said, I, I need some help. I wonder if it's there in Judaism. You know, I didn't at that time know much at all. So I started to take classes. I started to learn. And everything I learned made so much sense to me. And when I was in high school, I taught Sunday school at the Unitarian Church. And for instance, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, we go, oh, well, it was really the Reed Sea big winds came through. It was sort of a swamp. It kind of muddy, you know, the Egyptians, the Israelites could get through on foot and the Egyptians sank in their chariots. So there wasn't a miracle. There was nothing. This is just what happened. And that seemed, you know, brilliant at the time that you weren't getting caught up in religious superstition um, and ridiculous stories. So when I started studying again, you know, he said, the parting of the Red Sea is a, it's a paradigm of liberation. It's a model of going from the narrow place through the narrow place and out to expansion on the other side. I think, wow, a religion that can do that with, with this story, you know, it's just so powerful for me. So I began to really learn more and more. And then I decided at some point it was like sufficiently rooted in me, but I didn't, I didn't believe in God, and I didn't know how you converted to a religion if you don't believe in God. And so uh, it took a couple of years till I came to understand that on a spiritual journey, you don't, there's not an answer waiting for you. You don't arrive at a place of firm belief and conviction. It's, it's the searching, and that this path was a path of searching that I wanted to be on. And then, so then it made sense to to convert. Um, so you converted how long before you decided to be a rabbi or studied to be a rabbi? I converted in 1980 and I had a job then. There was a synagogue in my neighborhood that was completely 
collapsing. It, mm -hmm. it had no congregants, and the infrastructure mm -hmm. was collapsing. And this was Anshe Chesed, yeah. a conservative synagogue that had dwindled to a handful of mostly elderly people. Yeah. Yeah. So a group of younger people decided to revive it. And I said, well, if you will hire me half-time, I have a degree in community organizing. I, I, could, I could do that. So all of a sudden, here I was kind of the rabbi of the shul who had the most six months experience as a Jew. <laughs> and, uh, the thing that was great about it was that I had to just ask everybody to do everything because there was nobody mm -hmm. there. And I also came from the perspective of the outsider with a beginner's mind, you know. Which for a Jew is not a bad perspective. Right? No, it, it, was, it has been in my experience on my journey a very, it's a place from which I've been able to make big contributions mm -hmm. and, um, and grow. I didn't have any baggage about it whatsoever. And um, I just kept saying, what? This isn't here? What kind of religion doesn't have this? You know, and so, it, which is up to date with, with the aging. But um, I, just doing that work, and, and, and I had always wanted to be Jane Addams. I just wanted to, <laughs> to create a settlement house. I just, yeah. To me, that would be like, the epitome of what would be a wonderful life. And here a synagogue is kind of like a settlement house mm -hmm. in that way. Um, so I had, so I did that job and after a few years I thought, hey, I'd like to be able to do this, you know? And so I went to um, rabbinical school at Hebrew Union College and uh, while I was in, so I thought, great, I'm all for, for outreach, engagement, social justice, you know, community building, study, Childcare, all of these things, and um, and I was perking along quite well. And then it, it's a five-year program. At the beginning of my next to last year, Paul was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, it was like, oh, this level is also not adequate. You know, what gives you spiritual strength to be with this? And uh, so then I—that's when I sort of dove deeper into. Where do, do I connect? And then when he died um, at the beginning of my last year, I was like, I knew I would be okay, but I had no idea how that would happen. And I under came to understand that the God that I had constructed uh, shattered. I had, I had every, when Paul was diagnosed and when I came home from the hospital, I just fell down and prayed and I just said, please, Please save him. Please save him, God. Please. And as I'm saying these words, my mind is saying, Rachel, you know you don't believe in a God like that. <laughs> but I couldn't say anything else. And so what I wanted was a relationship in some way with that kind of resource that would give me strength. And, um, and what I had constructed till then couldn't do that. And then when he died, I realized that whole year I was still holding on to that idea, you know. I mean, Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre, that night, you know, one of the holiest nights in Judaism, he's back in the hospital and I'm, and I'm holding the Torah and I'm just praying again. And then he died four days later. And I realized I was really angry at that God, really angry even though that wasn't the God I believed in, you know? So how do, you, how do you then create a sense of connection with 
the one with presence, which at times, like if I'm meditating or something, I'm just completely there. But there are times when you need help, you know, when you can't just say, you know, may it be so. You just say, please, I, I need help. So, so I've come to understand a relationship that sort of is a, in a, a spectrum kind of relationship. And sometimes this God is so hidden and so unrevealed and, and it and is actually for me only his presence only as one. But sometimes that one can get manifested in a sort of a challenge, a channel that I can tap into more immediately. Beautiful. You know, it's such a extraordinary story that this Unitarian wasp from New England, whose family atheist does parents. atheist parents, not enough food on the plate, right? <laughs> yes. Marries this radical atheist Jew, right? Who then rediscovers his Judaism in a way that brings tens of thousands of other assimilated Jews to do the same. You, through your own course of study and reflection, because he wasn't putting pressure on you to do this, no. but you decide after 15 years of marriage to convert. Then you guys take on first the school right. and then the um, synagogue, the conservative synagogue, and then you decide to become a rabbi, right? Yeah. This atheist Unitarian right. wasp right. decides to become a rabbi, right. right? My mother always said my grandmother would at least appreciate that I was a clergy member. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then here you are becoming a rabbi, and the husband with whom you were partnering this is diagnosed with leukemia and dies. And you are left a rabbi without the partner who brought you on this journey. Yeah. yeah. It's an incredible story. I had an image that was sort of like from out here of that Paul and I had been walking on a path sort of along the edge of the cliff, mm -hmm. you know, and then suddenly he fell over. Mm -hmm. And there I was still on the path, mm -hmm. but I didn't know where it was going. Mm -hmm. but, but to feel you're on a path gives you solidity. You know? Right. And then along comes Charlie Halpern, another larger-than-life amazing friend of ours who's asked to direct the Nathan Cummings Foundation, which is a large, mid-sized Jewish foundation. He was the first uh, president of it. And guess who he asked to be the director of Jewish life is this rabbi who was an agnostic Unitarian atheist, right? <laughs> and she becomes the director of Jewish life. And... Charlie has two great passions. One is the mind-body health movement, and the other is contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And so you became, through that work at Cummings, really the pioneer or a pioneer, depending on how you look at it, but certainly in the philanthropic world, the pioneer, of both the Jewish healing movement and the contemplative practice yeah. movement. Yeah. And you ended up being named uh, one of the... Uh, uh, the Forward, which is a Jewish publication, named you one of the uh, 50 most uh, uh, 
the, the forward 50, you were named to it twice. And in 2010, you were named as one of the forward's 50 most influential women rabbis. Mm-hmm. So what a trajectory. What a trajectory, you know. It's really extraordinary. I wanted to ask you, is there any part of you that ever regretted this direction in your life? No, no. I remember with Sylvia, very early in her work at the Cummings Foundation, Mm -hmm. Charlie had met Sylvia at a Jewish Buddhist conversation Mm -hmm. at the Barry Center, at the Inside Meditation Society Mm -hmm. in Barry. And he came back and said, Rachel, you have to meet Sylvia. You have to meet her. You'll love each other. Mm-hmm. And so we, we met. And, um, and as she was talking about the work that she was training mindfulness leaders, community mindfulness leaders, I said, could you do that with rabbis? Mm-hmm. And she said, why not? And Sylvia always goes, oh, we had that conversation. <laughs> Rachel's going tick, 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 tick. You know, and we, we made a grant to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies yeah. and for Sylvia and, and my colleague Sheila Weinberg to come teach 15 rabbis. And when I was there, I, I had this huge sense of dislocation that really where the Barry Center was with its stone walls, old farm, was where my my grandfathers came from. You know, mm. like I, those, those were my roots. And... I always thought I would grow up and I would live in a New England colonial house, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I just said, but I'm in a 10th floor apartment in New York City. Like, how did that happen? How did, mm-hmm. where did I go? And I, and I had sort of like an overwhelming longing to bring them both together. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, what I've been able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality is a lovely line in the description of it. Uh, The Institute began in 1998 in reaction to the observation among some Jewish leaders that there was a growing number of Buddhists with Jewish names from Burstein, Burstein, Sylvia Burstein, who's here with us, thank goodness, and Jack Kornfield to Sharon Salzberg, who were teaching Buddhism in the United States and that many of their students were Jewish. This prompted some questions. Doesn't Judaism have a tradition of contemplative spiritual practice of its own? And isn't the tradition equipped to respond to Jews' deepest yearnings? The answer, of course, is yes. And that led to the founding of the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. But here and elsewhere, and also in your book, there is this ongoing anxiety in contemporary American Judaism that Judaism will disappear, that all the interfaith marriages and young people becoming agnostic and all the Jews who identify as Buddhist rather than Jews, that it will disappear. And so one of the, um, in a sense, selling points of the book is that in the effort from from a Jewish point of view, is that in the effort to revive Jewish identity, that these circles of wise aging can do that for the elders, just as other things are being undertaken right. to do that for right. younger people. Mm-hmm. You know, in a funny way, I mean, as you know, I don't, I, I, I have a, actually you launched me into my 
recovery of Judaism. I don't know if you remember this. You, I was going to Israel. I, I actually went over during the Six-Day War, as you may remember, with my right. brother Steve, right. because it looked like Israel was going to get wiped off the right. map. And so we both went over to offer ourselves to fight or whatever. Neither of us identified in any strong way as Jewish, but somehow we wanted to go fight for Israel, which we had never wanted to go fight for anything. We wanted to go fight for Israel. So uh, we both got press passes, and I was a reporter. Uh, I had been a stringer for the Washington Post in Brazil during a Fulbright there, and also had been a city desk reporter for the Washington Post. And so I got a press pass from the Washington Post and the Atlantic Monthly, and my brother Steve got one from the Village Voice. So we went over together, and I went into um, uh, Syria with the, uh, the assault troops, and then I was in the first uh, vehicle with correspondents to cross the Sinai Desert uh, right after. Wow, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, it was a very powerful experience. The, um, the, going up into Syria with the assault troops, uh, the closest I came to getting killed was when the commander told us we couldn't stay on the line of jeeps and we had to walk back toward Israel in, uh, as the sun was setting. Mm -hmm. And the Israeli soldiers were waiting for, you know, you know Syrians. Right. And so there was a, the older correspondents with me, two of them were deathly afraid that we were going to get shot. Um, but then crossing the Sinai, it was like a Fellini movie mm -hmm. because the the desert was scattered with burned tanks and half-tracks and dead bodies like flowers, like, you know, flowers in the desert. And I remember there was this one um, Egyptian soldier who had, his legs had been shot. He couldn't move. And he was sitting by the road and we stopped to give him water. And then on the horizon, uh, just about 500 yards from the road, you could see this long line of Egyptian soldiers walking back toward Egypt. Wow. So it was a very powerful wow. um, moment. But um, I've forgotten where I was going because I got into that. But, um, yeah, so you, I told you I was going back to Israel, right. but, and you introduced me to Rabbi Levi Wyman Kelman in uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. And... Uh, he had what the only was is it an Orthodox or Reform 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 synagogue or congregation in Jerusalem, to which he welcomed gay people and all kinds of right. people, and was under enormous right. pressure. But here all he was the all the time, and I met him, and he gave me it almost it brings tears to my eyes. He gave me one of his copies of the Torah, and he said, "Read this." So I went home and I began to read. Uh, and I went into this deep engagement with Jewish studies for three or four years. It was just yeah. very intense. And, and found Abraham Joshua Heschel, found uh, Salman Schachter, uh, found uh, uh, Steinsalz, uh, you know, just found my own version right. of Judaism, which is so close in many respects to yours. You know? I mean, yours, yours is rooted in, in the faith and the practice. Mine was much more rooted in how can I find 
the pieces of Judaism that fit with this fundamentally ecumenical right. way that I have to live right. in order to be truthful right. to the different parts right. of myself. Yeah. You know, there's a question I want to ask you, which is the only challenging question I'm likely to ask you, and I asked it over dinner right. in New York, so it won't be unfamiliar to you. Um, but here's the question. There's a wonderful quote from Yeats um, that goes like this. It says, does it surprise you that lust and rage dance attendance on my old age? They did not trouble me so when I was young, right? And if, if you look at, you know, I've been steeped in archetypal psychology for a long time. And if you look at James Hillman's work and all the different subpersonalities that we all have, and for Hillman, who was Jewish, in fact, the grandson of a very great a Jewish rabbi. I don't know if you know that. I didn't. Yeah, he was a great, great founder of, I think, the first rabbinical, orthodox rabbinical school in the United States in Cleveland or something like that. But uh, Hillman, the grandson of a great Jewish rabbi, deeply atheistic. Um, and so his view was that books and traditions of spiritual improvement missed something critical and fundamental, which is that we have all these different parts of ourselves. And if we only say, you know, we're going to be wise, we're going to have beautiful relationships, we're going to do all these beautiful things, that there are all these other voices within us, these darker voices, which contain tremendous vitality, that if we deny them, we really deny the fullness of our life. And so I think that is my only question for you and perhaps point of contention with you, is that for me, I do better understanding, you know, Hillman has a lovely, um, a lovely metaphor. He says each of us is like a boarding house. And some of the members, people in the boarding house, come and play by the rules during the day. Right. And there are others that only come out at night. Right. And there are some who never come out of their rooms right. at all. Right. right. And so I'm much more comfortable being in relationship with as many of the members of my boarding house as possible and not trying to nourish too much the darker ones, but at least acknowledge them and at least not say they're not part of me. And so for me, this is an argument that I have really with probably most of the spiritual traditions, but it, it arises in relationship to your book. I don't see in the book the acknowledgement of the darker parts of ourselves, which in my experience, if you acknowledge them, their power diminishes, that one can actually discover where the fruitful energy is and at least hopefully skillfully move them so that they do less harm. So well, I'm just curious how you hold that. I have been thinking about that since our dinner conversation. Yeah. And Norman Fisher had somewhat that same response. Um, Norman Fisher had the same response? As, as you. That, oh, really? That he, he says this book doesn't quite have enough darkness in it <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for his taste. So I... And we did a spiritual biography with Norman Fisher, yeah, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So I think 
that um, we probably didn't <coughs> emphasize that, but in our our basic teaching is all of these things need to be expressed. That we don't. It's not about squelching them and making them go away. That if they come out, your anger, whatever, if they come out and you can work with that anger, accept it for what it is, but not have it become then your modality of relating to to those around you and the way you view your future, that that's, I mean, that's one of the things we do say is, this is not at all about denying and suppressing. It's really about accepting. And when you accept that, that anger, that fear, you know, it's, it is part of growing older, but it also is so, it's so, if you get locked in it, you get so stuck. So being able to, to work through it and, Maybe we should have said more about that. I mean, to me, I mean, I have to say, for one thing, I'm not a person who's ever had much anger. I mean, it just isn't my not. I don't. Things piss me off, but I don't. I don't go. Also, my, you know, my mother used to be. Her attitude to life was kind of, ain't it awful? Look at these, you know, this politician, this, these men that. Uh, uh. And so when you grow up sort of surrounded by this kind of negative, you know, politically correct, but stuck in it, you know, it, it, I probably like backed away from that some, you know, okay. So, you know, we used to say Eisenhower's going sour or Nixon is a jerk. You know, that was my fifth grade song. So they're, you know, <laughs> they're all jerks and they do terrible things and Donald Trump, I mean, like I recognize it all, but I, I don't go around just bewailing it or feeling that. So maybe that's the guy that's staying in his room in my in my boarding house. I don't know, but I, I haven't been missing him. Um, so it may be from from my perspective, that's why it's not as emphasized. There are people who, I mean, what's her name, wrote a book. She used to write for The Voice. Uh, you know, just like uh, 50% of us are going to have Alzheimer's. Oh, it's so awful, so awful. All these people say aging is great, you know, bullshit. So I, you know... I, there perhaps could have been more in that. Um, my experience with most people, though, is that they're so frightened of getting old that they just, partly because there's, there's of the ageism of our society, it's like 70, uh, you know, and, and they, they don't know how to have the conversation at all. I imagine in it, from my experience in women's consciousness raising groups, a lot of anger comes out. You know, all that poem of like rage rage you know don't rage rage know, against the dying of the light the dying of the light that that which is the poem that my father read at his father's funeral right do not go gentle into that good right. night rage rage against the dying of the light right. dylan thomas yeah. right yeah. so uh, for some people that's fuel that yeah. that keeps them going yeah. um so, i mean i guess i cannot Actually, I never got angry that Paul died. I don't get, I'm not angry that I'm going to die. But you were furious with God. But I was, that's true. I was really angry. You were furious with God. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yes. And what I said after a little while, I said, wow, I must have a relationship if I'm this angry. You know, there's going to be something there. So who knows what it is, but I'll find that out. So it's true. See, I haven't sorted this out either because, like, the concept for me of wise aging is one I struggle with. 
Yeah. So for me, I find the claim that we should be seen as these wise elders to be, first of all, completely inconsistent with my own experience, but secondly, uh, to be uh, to be dangerous, uh, too dangerous in a way uh, that it's a kind of a pose that people have that they become wise elders. You know, you know, I'm just being honest about yeah. it, and so, and yet I believe in wise aging. So I like the title Wise Aging quite a bit because it doesn't claim that you're wise. It just says maybe there's a wise way to age, right? That somehow there's a difference between claiming to be wise and saying, I know it's subtle, and saying there's a wise way to age, you know? But I think there's also a way of saying my life makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, whether I liked how it all was, it makes sense. And I've learned something from yeah, that. And that I, I trust agree. that knowledge. And I can speak from that place of knowledge. I, I agree with that. Older people feel disempowered because we're irrelevant. We're out of it. I mean, the jokes that go on about growing old. Somebody just sent me one, you know, these, you know, the senior citizen, the senior talking to the IT person about her computer, you know, like, 50 gazillion jokes about how stupid we all are and dealing with technology or the way that people... To me, so to me, wisdom isn't like some exalted state. It's like I'm making sense out of my experience. And based on that, in this particular situation, I mean, this is kind of, you know, but like since we didn't vote for... We boycotted the election of, you know, Humphrey Nixon... And Nixon won. I just and then what terrible things. So I'm I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm going to go with whoever has the chance. Mm-hmm. So that I, I don't know if that's wisdom, but it's based on experience. And See, so. I like experience as a word. I I think that I'm ready to claim that I'm experienced, mm-hmm. that I've learned from experience, that I'm useful, mm-hmm. uh, and that my life has a coherence and integrity to it in its multiplicity of all the different subpersonalities or dimensions, that somehow the whole holds. And that I absolutely have a relationship with whatever you want to call the one or the numinous or the divine. That uh, Not that, just that it's my experience that I do. So, so, and I, I don't want to come down on one side or the other of the wise thing, but I, there's a tension for me about the claim of wisdom. Right. And that on the one hand, I actually believe that there are ways in which, with grace, we can become wiser with age. Maybe not wise, but wiser with yeah. age. Yeah, sure. Uh, and yet, there's a foreboding about the claim to be seen as wise. Well, I think part of wisdom is humility. Yes, absolutely. And so if you have humility, you're not going to be making these. That's exactly the point. In my experience, this is so. That's exactly the point. You're listening to a conversation with Rachel Cohen and Michael Lerner. So going back to the, the trajectory that you've described, we got you up to being a rabbi and, um, what has your spiritual life trajectory been since you became a, a rabbi, since you did 
the Nathan Cummings Foundation and the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. What has been the inner trajectory for you of your spiritual life over that latter period of time? I think it's really trying, what I, what I most deeply think about is how, how to, so they're the related things, but really um, understanding the divine, you know, and in relationship with that, really trying to not intellectually understand it, but, you know, I wake up every, I mean, I have a morning practice, you know, and, and one, there's this prayer that you say the very, you know, blessing God that you have, um, you know, the, the spirit of the universe, that you've returned my soul to me, you know, so reconnecting in that morning with, with that deeper place. Um, and then, and then you say, um, great is your rabbi munatech, great is your faith. And so I always try to say, in what might God have faith in me at this moment? You know, like who's here? Who's, who's waking up this morning? Like, and what is that connection? And Reb Zalman used to say, he would say to God, so God, how would you like to be Zalman today? You know, <laughs> and there's something in that thing of of sort of feeling connected more often the time, feeling the vitality of the life force, seeing the divine in everybody, you know, really diminishing judgment and sort of, you know, developing greater discernment. Um, you know, the question really is, for what am I called right now? You know, and I don't, I don't have that ambition to be, achieving the way I used to. I feel like probably I've done enough. So how do I kind of carry this forward? Um, and then thinking about death, you know, and how do I really not... There's some level of comfort I don't have yet, which I believe is an organic sense that I believe develops as we get older, as it becomes more inevitable. I, I have a theory of it, but I don't, it's not yet. You mean you want to be comfortable with that? I want to feel not um, agitated about it. You know, there's a wonderful line in the Dhammapada, the great Buddhist text, even the wise fear death, life clings to life, you know. And I'm not certain um, that we're supposed to get comfortable with that. I just don't know. Having done the cancer health program for 30 years, you know, I know some people appear to be comfortable with death and others appear not to be comfortable with death. When I had my heart attack, I was being helicoptered over to a... I realized that at that moment, when I didn't know if I would live or die, that I wanted to live with every fiber of my being, but if it was my time, I was okay to die. And then after I was told it was a good heart attack and I was going to be fine, then the fear began. And so my experience about fear of death is that if I'm far enough away, I don't fear it. If I'm close enough, I don't fear it. But there's a band of fear so that when I begin to have troubling symptoms that I think something might happen with my heart, 
then I fear. But if I get close to death, the fear disappears. So it's, it's a band that I need to move through. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just not sure we're biologically set up to be completely comfortable with death. It's like you know, breathing, you know. That could be so. There's a Jewish teaching, like Rabbi whoever, you know, is talking to his student and he, and, and uh, it's talking about fear of death. And, and so the student says, well, after you've died, will you come back and tell me about it? Mm-hmm. And so the rabbi comes back and he said, he said, the experience of dying was as easy as picking a hair out of a cup of milk. Mm. He said, but I would never want to come back because of the fear of that, you know, so that, that actually that is right. true. So I don't, I just want, I want to have a kind of acceptance of organic, the organic nature of having come organically out and going organically back. I mean, that's, if I were diagnosed, you know, God forbid, with mm-hmm. a, a fatal disease, I would be really, I would be really frightened. And I, but mostly I just don't want to leave my children. I don't want to leave my life. I don't, you know, all of those things. So just trying to see how to have some framework that makes it, mm-hmm. which is not denying that question of fear, but mm-hmm. there's some level of, and maybe, as you, as you say, it's impossible to you. I mean, Rev Zalman wrote this wonderful book, The December Project, because he had this theory that your life is like months, and each month has an agenda, and the December project is preparing for death, you know, and he did everything possible. And I imagine when he died in his sleep, you know, he certainly, nobody could have been more prepared. Yeah. Um, and the other thing he said was so surprising about that stage of life was how tired he was. So I imagine that factor of tiredness would also mm-hmm. come in. There's just some something I'm, you know, I read about, I think about, I talk about, I want to talk to my children about, because I don't want them to think that they need to be keeping me alive. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't feel like I need to live just to breathe, you know. And um, but how to you know, I feel like, as you say, it's sort of unrealistic to be actually talking about that moment. I mean, my mother, I mean, this here's New England, you know, she said, the moment I had a diagnosis that I only had so long to live, I don't want to die right then. I don't want to carry this out. And then an intern came into her hospital room when she just, she had a cancer diagnosis. And says, well, you know, you think, we think you have another six months to live. And she goes, I'll show him, you know. So I imagine myself doing that too, you know, my lovely little, you know, philosophy. And, so. In the wonderful book, Wise Aging, Living with Joy, Resilience, and Spirit, which I like so much, a couple of other points I want to pick up. You talk about uh, the obstacle of the declinist theory of aging and, you know, the theory that it's all decline. And then you talk about the truth, which I think is, it's called obstacle ahead, the declinist view of aging, and then countering the declinist view spiritually, psychologically, and scientifically. And again, my experience, I'm 72, um, my experience is that this is an incredibly precious, amazing time of life, that the opportunities for growth are just enormous. Uh, and so the two dominant 
experiences I have of this period now is of its the preciousness of life and a kind of infinite gratitude for it. And that's one of the things I like about Brother David Steindl-Rast, you know, is that gratefulness yeah. is his core theme, right. you know, the heart of his spiritual practice. And, and I, just, I just tend to spend at least part of every day in just this state of complete gratitude, you know, yeah, I have this bracelet I have here, wherever it is, is hakaratatov, um, <clears throat> recognition of the good is the word, Hebrew word for gratitude. You know, oh, no. Just being able to see, you know, just <clears throat> reminding oneself, but but not just say, oh yeah, thankful X, Y, Z, but... but Actually embody it, gratitude. Thinking it in, just feeling it, you know, and, you know, when I've spoken about this in different places I've talked about the importance of gratitude and a and a gratitude having a gratitude practice you know and so you find people doing these amazing things gratitude journals people exchanging emails every day a couple of gratitude things and I just think it is it is the most important thing let's talk a little about the groups that you're forming and the training that you're doing with people how would you if somebody wanted to start a wise aging group and you were kind of giving them the elevator speech for um, how you do a wise aging group, what would you say? First thing to create safety, to really have a, a container that's safe so that people feel um, heard and people feel they can say something that will not spread out and that even... Sometimes when you're in a group and you say something unexpected, you didn't know you were going to say that, and mm-hmm. you you might burst out crying or you might something that that unless you ask people for some some reflection on that experience, you don't need to have it reflected on. That was your expression. So we another piece is the safety, active listening, really listening and not. So many groups and women's groups I remember were this way a lot. Just you start to speak and then I leap in and try to either finish your sentence or to tell you what was a better sentence you you could have said if you were like me. So that sort of giving people experience to to really reflect and go inside I think is is important. Then having a structure, some of which is any kind of poetry, you know, just we have kind of trigger texts in there that you can talk about. And then, you know, from the perspective of of the Jewish community, to have uh, a venue for people where they are honored, their their life is valued, is given space, given meaning, because as you were starting to say before, Jews are so worried about disappearing that all the resources go into young people Mm -hmm. and getting them engaged, which is true, but here's a lot of us already engaged and not much is coming our way. So then we say, well, why should we stay engaged? Um, but I think it's that. And, and having kind of a some topic so you're, it's not just a whoever, theme. A theme. And, and often in a group, some person is coming with something really burning so the group can respond to that or the group can be carried away by it. So some sense that there is some... some guarding or watching of of the process that's going on. Mm -hmm. And 
do you have a sense of the right number of people for a group? Well, when we do our trainings, we just did a two-day training in San Francisco. Um, we say 10 to 12 people. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be a group that has consistency, which I think it should, if you have fewer than, if you have, I mean, if you have eight and if two people are gone, it's, you know, so that means because no, not everyone can come every time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a facilitator's manual that, you know, we, that we teach from, but um, anybody, you know, can pick that up and, and, you know, with your friends, just sit down and read it. And if you're not Jewish, the Jewish texts sometimes raise interesting questions and a lot of other ones as well. And um, I think it's, I just think it's really worth doing. It's really a conversation that isn't happening. And so this is an invitation to conversation. And uh, I mean, I just have, and I'm sure you've all had this experience, you know, people, what do we talk about? You know, 70 is the new 50, Phew, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> what I like to say is 70 is the new 70, you know, and that really, you know, people don't want to say their age. They, you know, a friend of mine goes, Rachel, I'm, oh, that's so hard. It's like, you know, at the end of a roll of toilet paper. It goes so fast. You know, and it's like to see your life as the end of a roll of toilet paper, you know, is like, so how, so which really is finding it. And the other thing that's really an important agenda uh, is finding your authentic self, you know, that we've spent our lives, so many of us, being who other people want us to be and being good at that and finding meaning in it, but some part of ourself that never got to be fully expressed. Um, do your groups, um, how, how often do they meet in general? And are they fixed in duration or do they go on continuously? Well, the two groups that I'm doing now, one has been meeting for 10 years and four of the people in that group have trained to lead other groups that are each leading other groups. Um, and it's now they've moved it up to, to two hours. And to me, what was so kind of amazing about that group was that in an hour and a half, they found it completely transformative. You know, I said, sort of oh, you have to be really deep and long. And they just, the idea you could see it this way, it was just like flipping a mirror. You know, there's one man who said, the beginning of that group, this was at a synagogue and the rabbi had invited uh, 12 people to be part of this group. And four of them were men. And after the first one, one of the men said, oh, I thought this was going to be lectures on the Talmudic views of aging. But the other three hung in there, men. And I, I'm saying this because a question I'd like to ask you has to do with why this is so hard for men to do. And do you have ideas about how it could be made more, uh, more inviting? But one of the men said, I've been, my whole life, I'm, uh, my whole life I've been, making partner at this firm. And now I've been partner for umpty-umpty years. I'm about to be 65. I will no longer be partner. And I will leave my big office and my card won't say partner, blah, 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 firm. And I'm completely terrified. I have no idea who I am. I'm, I have, I don't have hobbies. I, I mean, my whole life has been doing this. And for many, many people, I don't think it's just a Manhattan thing. Um, there's so much has been in the 
building, doing, striving, achieving, maintaining, holding on, that they, they don't know what to do. So a lot of people don't retire because they don't know what they would do. They don't know who they would be. Others don't retire because they need the money, but they don't spend any time sort of building a, another life sort of, you know, around that. So for him, this has been completely transformative. He had been a cancer patient. He went back to chaplaincy. You know, he's found a lot of ways. There's a new project in Manhattan of encouraging, it comes out of the Gunderson Foundation in Lawrence, Wisconsin, of encouraging the converse, end-of-life conversations. He's very engaged in that. Other people have gotten involved in social justice work. So this group for them, they said, we never had friends in our synagogue that we knew as well as we know each other, and we're in this for life. So um, I think it's just really significant, but I would like to ask you that question about men. Well, uh, men aren't as good at this. I mean, flat out, they're not. And the Cancer Help Program, which we've done for 30 years, it's like 80% women. Um, and the men who come often have trouble. I mean, some do it well. But just access to feeling, uh, a valuing relationship, these are feminine qualities. And some men have them, but an awful lot don't. The interesting... Um, exception to this is in heart groups because uh, men do join support groups after heart attacks and we founded uh, some friends of mine and I who had heart attacks or heart issues founded a group that's now been meeting for I think 12 years once a month for uh, two hours and it's very powerful and important to all of us and there are quite a few men and quite a number of men who have stuck with it. And what uh, do you do in the group? What do we do? You know, th this is the thing. This is like healing circles, and it's just like right. exactly what you're describing. And this is why our healing circles work, which comes out of 30 years in the Cancer Health Program, is so important, because we want to figure out how to share deep intentional work. In other yeah. words, most support groups, cancer or otherwise, stay on the surface. They don't go very far. So the question is, and most people will never be able to come spend a week at Commonweal, which can be completely transformative of a life. So the question is, how do you create these groups like your wise aging groups? And what really interests me uh, for continuing conversation with you is what the methodology is that really deepens this. So, for example, we begin, and I'm, we don't do it perfectly, and you know why? We got into habits early on yeah. that are not ideal, right. but we can't break out of the habits. So from my point of view, an ideal group always, and this we do, we start with silence and we end with silence. Right. You know, there should be, whether it's silence or something else, there should be a beginning and an end. Yeah. Then um, uh, in my view, uh, if you think of these groups as a circle with a vertical and a horizontal axis, the vertical axis is what David Steindl-Rask calls um, uh, the y-axis. The horizontal is the how axis. Uh -huh. And so the y-axis goes to emotional, mental, emotional, spiritual healing. The y-axis is for whatever it is, whether it's aging or cancer or whatever it is, it's what are the specific skills or issues that you need to go through. So 
from my point of view, a group should be able to do both things, and both things require different methodologies. So the y-axis, which is the most profound, requires the generous listening. So whether you use a talking stick that goes around the room or just giving each person a chance, you know, and you know, some method, or you pick a stone if you have something to say. Right. It doesn't matter which method. Right. But, you know, uh, but finding a method that works really well uh, for the deep work. Then the how work uh, may involve somebody coming in to talk about something or having a session on diet. And there, instead of the deep, generous listening, you want the capacity right. to exchange. So there are two different modes of discourse according to whether you're working with the vertical or the horizontal axis. So so I'm profoundly interested in this. And then you have the issue which we have with cancer, uh, our cancer groups, like we have three alumni groups working with cancer. And so they lose people all the time. And so the difference between a group that loses people all the time and therefore needs to welcome new members, and a group that doesn't lose people all the time uh, is a profound difference. But if it's a group that doesn't lose people all the time, nonetheless, there are changes, right? Right. You know, somebody does die, or relationships change, you know. And and how does the group accommodate those shifts in relationships? And does it destroy the group? And do you have a method for calling an end to a group in a good way. The other thing I would say about really good groups is you want to have the methodology right, and it matters a huge amount who you invite to the table because the quality of the group will depend. And, of course, it can be wonderful if it's just random, but there's something very special about a group that you have invited a set of people with whom you want to sit over a long period of time. And who are people that can do groups well. And who can do groups well. But the other dimension of this, which you know, is that we live in a small town. So there's, whatever, 12 of us in this group, whatever. So if you live in a contained community, whether it's a small town or a social network or whatever, people will self-censor, and naturally so. There will be things that you're not willing to talk about. So it's, it's, it's... a form of important partial disclosure right. and honoring the fact that people will self-censor and that you're not going to talk about everything, you know. So there are many dimensions to the skill of this, and I think this book is an extraordinary um, introduction to doing this with aging. Let me, before I open it to uh, others for questions and comments, is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to say? Anything that sticks out that we I don't, haven't? I don't think of something. Okay. Um, it may come to you and we can come yeah, back to it. Yeah, I mean, just in what you were saying about groups, in our group that's gone for 10 years, it started as a spirituality group with mixed age, and then after four years, the younger women went on to do other things, and it was the older ones. Then we invited new people in. Mm-hmm. An, a, an issue that comes up a lot in these groups are, there are two issues that are really, one is people who have children who don't have children. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for women who don't have children or don't have grandchildren to hear everybody talking about their children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So we 
really try to be not just sympathetic, but to really pay attention to that issue and to do the, but people have to talk about that also. Um, And we have, so far we've been able to hear the person who is saying, I feel really left out. Um, And actually in one group that the person realized that she did have nieces and nephews, she felt, you know, and sort of she was able to expand her idea of family. Um, The other is people whose partners are failing and just the terrible burden of that. The caregiving. Of the caregiving and having gone from being a a couple Mm -hmm. that did everything together to one where one is really sagging and the other is trying to Mm -hmm. make a question of guilt about what life do I have and... So those are all issues that are, are difficult ones. And, and some of them are the, the vertical, but some are the horizontal, just mm-hmm. ideas how, what will help me, right. you know, do this. And people are, are quite able to help each other with those arrangements. And in, that, in the, our tenure group, a woman died, the oldest woman in the group, but not, seemingly not ill. She just had a sudden heart attack. And so the group was able to kind of hold each other through that. I still, when I send out mailings to the group, I still have her name on the group, and I ha- I, I delete it each time, just like a way of remembering her. her. Um, and sometimes we will, you know, the chair where she, where she sat, you know, will remember her, and and I think it's encur- you know encourages other people knowing that that the group will stick with them too. Yeah. Sylvia Burstein, our beloved friend from Spirit Rock and a senior teacher of contemplative practice who came with Rachel today, I just want to invite any reflection you have as you've listened to Rachel today. I enjoyed her a lot. Um, <laughs> but because we we're good friends and we love each other a lot. And... Uh, I, I was very charmed by your telling of your story, uh, none of which I didn't know before, except the lines of connection between mm-hmm. you and Michael and mm-hmm. Paul's family. And, uh, and I was just very touched by that, maybe because it touches on how we're all connected to each other in all kinds of ways that we don't even know about. <laughs> and if we could but know how everybody would look more like family, and uh, that's the kind of feeling that warms my heart, makes me feel if I could somehow encourage people to think, mm-hmm. if I knew more about this person. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it when you particularly talk about when um, uh, negative feelings arise about somebody. Somebody once taught me the idea of thinking this person probably also wants a, this person with whom I disagree so vehemently about their views of how the future should unfold politically. Um, they probably have, as I do, children and grandchildren, and they probably are interested in their children and grandchildren having clean water and clean air. Mm-hmm. They probably hope for the same things as I. And so that kind of a, a vision of we're not so separate uh, is one that, I try to think about a lot. I was also particularly thinking about um, maybe two more things. 
One was about um, negativity and acknowledging feelings of distress in oneself. And I think that there's been a, a kind of a, uh, on some level, uh, a mythological belief that if I did enough spiritual practice, that animosity and negativity would never again arise. <laughs> and that doesn't happen. I mean, you pointed out, we're, uh, I don't think we're meant to be that way. Uh, uh, the best quote I know about that is uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Someone asked him, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. Thing, and it startled the whole huge audience. But he said, of course. And he said, things happen. They're not what you expected. Anger arises, mm -hmm. and then he waited for a moment, and then he said, but it doesn't have to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me so, uh, Rachel, you said it, you know, it could arise in you, but what comes out of you in terms of a speech or an action could be, could be uh, moderated by the awareness, am I going to make this more complicated and create more suffering? Mm -hmm. So that particular, and I, I think it's part of this kind of... <coughs> Uh, ongoing uh, unconscious belief system that we'd be a certain way if we were wise, that we'd never have anger arise, or we'd always be sure about ourselves, and we wouldn't be frightened at the last minute or any of that stuff. Right. I don't know what I'm going to do at the last minute. Right. I'm, you know, I think to myself sometimes one of the things I love is reading um, last minute utterances of. Famous sages in, in the in the Zen tradition, they have whole books of last minute utterances. <laughs> One of my daughters once asked me, "What are you going to say is your utterance?" And I said, "Well, I'm not a Zen teacher, and I haven't thought about it." I said, "Do you have any good ideas?" <laughs> and I also mentioned a ten-syllable phrase, a seven-syllable phrase. Those have special powers. So she thought a moment. And she said, well, you could say housework is a waste of time. That's what I thought about. Wait, I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear it. Say it one more time. Housework <laughs> is a waste of time. Right. Um, so there was one other thing that I thought of in terms of having what kind of people do you want in a group. And you get all kinds of people in a group. But maybe particularly in training leaders of groups, I have been part of a um, group of uh, Dharma teachers for probably 20 years now. Mm -hmm. And I think we're down, we never were more than 12, and now we're down to seven, maybe eight, because of people, people die, people move. Mm -hmm. But we've met every six or eight weeks now for 20 years. And, um, Mostly we're getting old, uh, some newer people. But one of the things that I think has kept the group lively is at least one of us, and more, probably, uh, having come through the uh, human encounter, what, what, the, what was it called, those encounter group movements, <laughs> somebody has to be ready to up the ante at all times. Somebody suddenly says... Um, well, how, what I've discovered about my, uh, uh, the time I was furious about somebody for 10 years and couldn't get over it, this is what happened in the end. Or 
the time I fell in love with somebody and I was torn apart about whether or not to act on that or not act on that. Somebody raises the ante to what you don't normally speak about with other people. And people speak about it. They don't say, wow, what you just said. They just pick it up and run with it. And I think it causes other people to then say, well, you know, actually it happened to me once. And you know, if you live in a life once, sooner or later you fall in love with somebody. And it's not the time or the place to do. So what do you do? But somebody has to be ready to say that. And the rest of the group picks it up and it gives them permission to yeah. say, yeah, you need great. at least one, <laughs> yeah. one honest person without that, that built-in <laughs> reserve. Yeah. And that keeps the group very lively. Otherwise, they don't get to say. Yeah. Especially in groups where people are dying. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be able to talk about it. I, I find the methodology issue so interesting. So, for example, in the healing circles thinking that we're doing, the two models that we tend to work with are either Parker Palmer's model of group work or Christina Baldwin's model, which is called uh, peer spirit counseling. Or I think that's what it's called, yeah. yeah, peer spirit counseling. And they're a little different, but they have a lot of the same fundamentals. I don't think it really matters which method somebody uses but I think it matters enormously that the, that the group leader or uh, that the people facilitating the groups, not leaders, are skillful. Yeah. That just matters hugely. And then that the members of the group are able to be skillful. Right. And I think the, the, the group rises and falls with the combination of the method you choose, the skill of the facilitator, and the collective skill and intention yeah. of the group. And beyond that, it really doesn't matter which method you choose, just one that suits that particular group. And even then, there are some groups that fly and, and some that don't. Yeah, and some of them won't. Yeah. And what do you do when there's a member of the group who's difficult? And from my point of view, the reason you want some kind of group facilitator or leader is somebody needs to be empowered to take that person aside and say, here's the issue, we'd love you to stay in the group, but if this doesn't work for you, perhaps you can find another person. Yeah, in a group that that I did, you know, one person came with such hurt anger, Mm -hmm. and she she didn't feel we were addressing that. And so I said to her, you know, the group is... It's a very new group. It doesn't have the strength, actually, yeah. to work with that now. And it might be that for you, it would be better to find a group that was really mm-hmm. addressing. Mm-hmm. This isn't a support group. It's a supportive group, but not a support group. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it needed, because otherwise that person would have just wreaked havoc with the group. Erwin mm-hmm. Keller, you, you lead a Jewish congregation. You, um, you're in rabbinical school right now. Uh, do you have any thoughts or reflections as you listen to this? Um, I've been very interested listening to the description of what the groups can do. Thank you. For listeners at home, we had a little spill at this moment. All right. Um, and your feet are up in the air. <laughs> at my synagogue, we house uh, a group for young people with special needs and their families. And they come together every month. And, uh, and during the time that they're together, the, we make it possible for the parents to sneak out to another room 
and have conversation for uh, 45 minutes or an hour. And, um, and these parents are going through a lot of stuff. The kids are aging. The kids that were kids when the group started are 21 now. Um, the parents are trying, and these are kids with severe disabilities, and the parents are trying to figure out what happens when I die. Yeah. Who's going to take care <laughs> yeah. of my kid? There's really intense stuff going on, and, and very intense medical needs that a lot of the, the young people have. And one of the things that was happening in this group was that parents were starting to not want to go because they were all coming in uh, so full of um, so full of difficulty that hearing other people's difficulty uh, was something that they couldn't, they kind of had no more room for it. Mm -hmm. Something that I've been uh, sort of piloting this year, uh, and I don't know yet how it's going, is it was inspired by Caroline Casey. Who comes here from time to time? Who's a mystical astrologer of extraordinary? And she told a story about uh, working with a group uh, that was having a difficult. Uh, she was asked to facilitate off the cuff, sort of a difficult discussion about Israel and Palestine, um, mm-hmm. which is, of course, very you know very loaded for everybody, and um, and so she agreed to do it on the condition that everybody who speaks finishes by offering a blessing and the blessing would need to be imaginative it would need to be specific and would also need to be reciprocal so they would need to offer a blessing that they would also be happy to receive so it's not a you know i i I bless you that you might wake up tomorrow and realize how wrong you are (laughs) right and uh so I've tried doing that. I, I've, I've tried to bring this a little bit into the group that everybody who shares, um, they get a certain amount of time to share. And then someone in the room offers them a blessing. And the blessing might not be about the specific thing. And, and really, at best, shouldn't be about the specific thing, the specific difficulty that whoever was sharing uh, just spoke about. Um, but maybe to bring us to a different level, uh, a level deeper or a level loftier. Or it can be something a little bit to the side, um, you know, that's not about uh, solving the medical issue, but about noticing some, some, something particularly beautiful when you're on your way to the yeah. doctor's appointment. And people are really starting to take an interest in these. And, and it seems to be allowing uh, people who would normally be sitting there and thinking, Oh my God, I hadn't yet thought about that. I haven't experienced that. I haven't even thought about it yet. It's another thing to feel anxious about. Um, And instead of giving them a way to sort of, uh, to sort of contain and turn around um, their own experience uh, in order to give a blessing and receive blessing at the same moment. So I've been experimenting with with that this year and seeing how that's going and um, and so I wanted to offer that up as another addition to our conversation about how such a group might work. Um, but it's felt to me like it has some potential. Now, Rachel, doing blessing practice is part of what you describe in this mm-hmm. book. You have, you have meditation, you have journal writing, you have walks in nature, you have the river of life practice, uh, and you have blessings. Those are five of the things that right. are as in practices in prayer. Yeah. So how do you use blessing and, and your wise aging? Well, there, first of all, there is a, a blessing in Judaism that you could actually say 
every moment is Shehekianu. So you say, blessed are you, source of life, who has given us life, sustained us in life, and brought us to this, this moment. So it's finding the blessing that there is in this moment. Another thing we do is ask people in pairs to, to tell a partner what blessing they would like to receive, and then their partner gives them that blessing. We do that sometimes. Or we teach, you know, just opportunities for blessing in so many parts of life. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that that, you know, what you just said or went about in the, this woman using that for this Israeli-Palestinian conversation absolutely beautiful. I'm bringing it home because it's such a crippling conversation. Yeah. Marian Weber, you, you've thought a lot about aging and um, this part of our lives. Any reflections as you've listened to this? Well, for me, I'm, I'm just fascinated by change. You know, I'm fascinated by aging and death. And I think if curiosity which I sense in the room, is there. Well, it's, it's wonderful. Mm. Um, it's not being wise. It's not being this or that. It's just like, for me, that is one of the main things I carry in this life. It's just I'm intrigued by yeah. what's now, what's around the corner. and So I, I think if we carry that, and um, it is a blessing. I like that emphasis on curiosity, and it, it helps me with my partial resistance to wise aging as a, a term. Um, Mimi Kalpestri, who's here, started with others here, this third age group. And again, I like that language because it's, there's something about the wisdom term that I both recognize and continue to struggle with. Mimi, have, have you any reflections on the conversation? <laughs> Excuse me, allergy going up, but I enjoyed very much your conversation. I really was interested to hear about your life and your life experiences and yours too, Michael, mm -hmm. things I didn't know. And the thing I feel about the group and the whys, since you brought that up particularly, that always bothers me, mm -hmm. you know, because people will meet, and I'll meet friends I have, grandson, an adult who lives in town, and daughter, and they'll say, oh, here's your wise old mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> meaning it in the nicest way possible. And I feel, don't, please don't put that on me. Here I am stumbling along. Mm -hmm. This is a whole new country to me, this aging. Um, and I recently had a small stroke, which has, has left me fine physically, and as I say, the joke, of course, the jury's still in on the mental part. Mm -hmm. I find that a few little things are different, but I feel like this is the open of a whole new terrain for me, mm -hmm. that I appreciate your conversation so much today in talking about, especially Michael, you say, you know, when you're here, you're fine, and death and dying is fine. When you're right there facing it, and I have been in that situation, it's beautiful, it's blissful, it's like, wow, you know, that all this coming home. But this space between, mm -hmm. you know, is always, is, you know, when I say, okay, that happened then, here I am now, I'm fine, but I'm not the person I was. And this is the thing I would like to talk more about in our group. And one of the things I find about the elders group 
perhaps a small town syndrome, is the, it seems like a fear and a refusal to want to go deeper, talk about the spiritual aspect of life, which is very important to me. Um, because I find as I'm aging, and, and now after this experience, that um, I feel that spirit is incredibly important. It has been for me for many, many years, but it's more important that it's brought out into all conversations. Yeah. Because it is so much a part of all our yeah. life. That spirit has we see it. Yeah. You know, the great oneness, whatever. Yeah. And so with the elders group, that's what I find one of the difficult parts is how do we get people to that point? So they don't come to this group necessarily to go there. How do you right. get people to the place where when I talk to people individually, they have this fear of what if it's the helpless fear? Yeah. I've become helpless over certain things, you know, physical things, but beyond that. You know, just like the wisdom language is is a challenge we share. Um, the spiritual language is a challenge for a lot of people. And um, we had a wonderful guy come on a recent cancer help program who said, I'm religious, but not spiritual. You know, he, most people will tell you they're spiritual, but not religious. He said, I'm religious, but not spiritual, you know. And, and, but spiritual language cuts a whole set of people out. And one of the beauties of Rachel Naomi Remen's work is that she does this without using spiritual language. And it's such a gift. So, for example, she'll pick a key word for a, a group meeting, like service or purpose or meaning or something like that. There is a language that can be taken into depth without needing the spiritual language, you know? And it's just, I mean, spiritual is a useful shorthand, but precisely because it divides, I mean... How could true spirit divide, right. right? And so, you know, it's always interesting to me, what are the languages with which this work can be done that don't necessarily divide? Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we don't use, I don't, I don't think the words we use are spiritual. Like we don't usually talk about God unless right. somebody, you know, somebody... Uh, wants to talk about, but gratitude, generosity, exactly. humility. I mean, I think that whole language of, of qualities that we would say spiritual qualities, but people would say make sense qualities, you know, and, and, uh, and also people's fear, allowing them to say what their fear is, you know, to name it and bring it out and then, you know, Find ways that I mean. What I what I always say is, fear is a, a future word. It's living in the future, and if we can come back right now to now, you know, and what's okay now. Um, people find about that. this group we met, met as a <clears throat> elders group, <clears throat> third age group, and uh, just to explore all kinds of different things. And meeting with another woman, Joan Robbins, <laughs> and. But we have gotten to the point, it was a much larger group in the beginning, and a lot of things, things about community problems and personal problems and caretaker problems, and where to get help problems and how yeah. to get to the shopping problem. 
And now we've kind of, there's a core group that's coming and I watched this group go from this place to getting to the place where they want to talk about yeah. what, what they're talking yeah. about. They want to talk about what is my meaning now? Right, I question the meaning. What is my meaning here now that I've lost this other meaning? Yeah. Rachel has another great question that she asks. Is uh, she asks what matters now? Yeah. What matters yeah. now? And then you know, or she'll talk about purpose mm-hmm. in life. These are good. I I want to ask you, Rachel, to read a passage that you have from Heschel that I think is just uh, really beautiful. Um, at the beginning of the book, would you read that passage? Abraham Joshua Heschel. So Abraham Joshua Heschel was a very um, beloved rabbi. He was—he died. He wasn't even 70 when he died. But he had a white beard and white hair. So everyone thought he was really old and, and uh, such a powerful, beautiful teacher. And he gave this a talk in 1961, I think, at a White House conference on aging. He wrote a piece called To Grow in Wisdom. It was the most... A most beautiful, beautiful piece, but really reclaiming the value of the lives of older people. And at the White House conference, it's very much about policy, about health care, blah, blah, social security. I don't mean blah, blah in a sense it's not important. It's totally important. But no thinking sort of about the inner life of, of older people. So he just began it this way. He said, these years are indeed formative years, rich in possibilities to deepen understanding and compassion, to widen the horizon of honesty, to refine the sense of fairness. One ought to enter old age the way one enters the senior year at a university, an exciting anticipation of consummation. But the attainment of wisdom is the work of a lifetime. He said, you don't turn 80 and you're wise. (laughs) So he doesn't seem to have problems with the word wisdom, but it's the whole essay is beautiful if you can find it. It's in one of his one of his collections. Um, but to me, I think when I read that, it was like there were several things that helped me. Mary Catherine Bateson talked about. She said, "This time of extended life, it's not like we've added a caboose at the end of the train. It's like we've added a whole new car." It's there, you know, in the last third of the train. And what's in that car? We don't know. That's, but that's the time when she says, she calls it active aging, where we still have the energy and perspective to, for service to bring change in society and to understand our lives. And um, I think all of those, you know, um, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's The Third Chapter, all these books and the whole premise of the encore it's interesting, I just learned of a program some of you may have heard of, of the National Council on Aging called Mastering Aging. So that apparently is extremely popular. It's maybe like an eight-week course, and it tells you how to master these things that you need to do. You know, So it's like really your will, your finances, your this, your that, um, all of which are... But to think you can master old age, you know, and Heschel has another thing. The goal is not to keep the old man busy. Mm-hmm. The goal is to show, is to, to find, to heal what he calls the 
something about, you know, the things of a lifetime, the, all of the, the hurts, you know, do the work of forgiveness, to do this work, which he doesn't say a spiritual word there, but it is all these tasks that we know that we need to do. And that that's the ultimate beyond the, as you were saying, the people talking about the caretaking and all, which is so important. But to be able to go another level to really, what is the healing that we need to do? And, um, and how do we conceptualize? I mean, again, it's, this is spiritual language, but of seeing ourselves as children of God, you know, and not as people who still can do things, but people who do things. You know, this word is sort of called the tyranny of still. Oh, I can still do this. I can still do Like any moment, they're going to take it away from me as opposed to this is what I do. This is who I am. It's not I'm still me. I'm actually not still me. I'm an evolving person. So, Rabbi Rachel Cowan, thank you for your extraordinary work with Jewish healing, with Jewish contemplative practice. Uh, now with aging for everyone um, and for the, the blessing that you have brought into the lives of people who've never heard your name. Uh, thank you for being with us at the school. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Rabbi Rachel Cohen and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook. 